Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to Polcast. In this episode, we'll tell you... How an American professor remembers his three years in Poland, which included martial law. What Polish invention is commonly used in electronics and... How a Polish-Canadian jazz vocalist decided to live in Poland. American academic Bernard Kolowski from Mansfield, Pennsylvania, came as a Fulbright professor to Poland for a year to Katowice University with his two daughters. He started arranging the contract to teach American literature in Poland even before Solidarity exploded in 1980, and arrived in the fall of 1981, just in time for strikes and then martial law. He didn't leave, though. In fact, he stayed for three years. Our friend Bernie, with his guitar, poetry, and songs, together with other Americans and British people teaching in English departments at Polish universities, became an oasis of normal life in the communist lunacy we lived in, and a symbol of freedom we Poles were all dreaming of. But the experience was equally powerful for him, as we find out after 35 years. How did Poles that you met compare to your expectations? My impression was that Poles and Slovaks were rather uh, religious people, reserved people. I don't want to say dour exactly, but um, reserved and uh, serious. They were not at all reserved. They were warm and fun-loving and caring and uh, full of life, relaxed, skeptical, sarcastic, uh, all those things that I wasn't expecting people talking in coded language. And th that's the way the Poles spoke. I mean, they, I learned really rather quickly that people say what they had to say, especially in public, especially when they were around anybody who might be listening. But it was, it was coded. It was uh, full of irony and sarcasm. And the messages going out to other people were something like, well, you know, I have to say this, but don't take this too seriously. I'm not, this is not what I believe. This is what I have to say. And I think that was such a part of Poland at that time. And I think it was that most of the time I was there, almost everybody, almost always, was speaking in a kind of code. But they valued their Polishness, not their... Their allegiance was not to communism. It was not to the government. It was to their own Polish identity to the extent that they could have such a thing, although that was a really complicated business, I think. And so I think that was weird because I'd never been anywhere with people who talk like that, 
I don't think I ever met a Pole who didn't like Ronald Reagan. They would say to me, oh, he's the only one who knows how to deal with communism. Well, maybe, but, but he did not know how to deal with his own people. Did you ever find that there was a clash between your values and the values of those Polish people that you met in Poland? Well, with Reagan, there certainly was. <laughs> because yes. in America, I'm mixing with, with African-American people and with Hispanic people and with Native American people and with Asian people. And they're all, and that's been my life. So I think there wasn't much sympathy for that among the Poles I knew. But, you know, I, I think that was just experience. It's hard to have a fellow feeling for people you've never met and you've never seen, you've never been around. You could have left. What made you stay longer? I stayed. My daughter, Laurie, stayed. She stayed actually for four years. She stayed a year after I left. I stayed because it was wonderful. I mean, you know, I had much better students in Poland than I've ever had in my life. So I had better students. I was teaching more interesting things and I was meeting all these wonderful people. There were lots of funny moments, too. We were warned before we went over to Poland that we should not use the Polish mails because our letters could be opened. So they arranged for us to have diplomatic mail. So until December 13th, I would go to Krakow every week and pick up my mail. Well, you remember on December 13th, that was not possible. You were not allowed to leave your city anymore and you needed permission to leave the city. So I went to, I went to the, my shepherd, you know, the person assigned to me who was supposed to help me deal with Polish bureaucracy and things and said, is there any way you could get me permission to leave the city every week or so and go over to Krakow because I can't get my mail. And he said, oh boy, this is going to be a hard sell. He said, the authorities are not giving people permission to leave the city. But he said, I'll try. So he came back a few days later and he said, well, it was impossible to get you permission to go to Krakow. And then his face lit up and he said, but I got you an order to go to Krakow. <laughs> it was theater, play acting, it was. And you know, you remember my Polish was never very good. I never did learn much Polish. Although your students never believed that. I, I think the students in Warsaw were convinced that I was some kind of secret agent or something and that I really was fully fluent in Polish. I understood some things, you know, and they'd be talking among themselves and I would say something in English to make it perfectly clear that I knew what they were talking about. And they would look at each other and they'd say, see, he understands everything, which was never true. But they, the police always knew who I was. I mean, they didn't know who I was personally, but because I had a, remember, I had a green license plate, different from everybody else's. And the codes on there, the numbers on there told them that I was from Katowice, that I worked at the university and that I was a foreigner. When I was stopped, I thought, oh boy, this isn't a random check. They're, they're stopping me because there's something about that license plate that makes me look suspicious. So somehow people were going through the motions. Uh, I knew that our rooms were being bugged because the elevator was only supposed to go from, I think I was on the second or third floor. It was only supposed to go to the uh, ground level. But apparently there was a, a level below that. And one day the elevator must have misfunctioned because I, I opened the door, the doors opened and there I was one level below the street level. And there were all these people sitting at their you know, like a telephone switchboard with mics and things in their ears. And I was stunned. I didn't know what this were. I looked at them. They looked at me. They said, Jane Dobry. I said, Jane Dobry, closed the door. So I knew that the department was being bugged. You know, we were all briefed on that. I mean, we were told 
probably wherever you go, you're going to be bugged. And there was this sort of thing you did. And I remember in Katowice, we'd all be sitting around. And when somebody got on a subject that looked a little suspicious, everybody just pointed up at the ceiling. Or, you know, that's all you needed to do to say, watch what you're saying. Did you worry about Poland and Poles, your friends? Yes, I was worried about them, yeah. To get into our building, you had to go through, uh, you had to have to sign in. I mean, we were allowed to go in without signing in because the guards knew who we were, but any visitor had to sign in. And after the 13th of December, nobody ever visited me again. No, no Pole ever came again. And they, you know, they were, I was worried about them because they would explain to me, they would say, look, nobody's going to send me to Siberia. But if I sign in, there's going to be a record of that, and it's going to show up on my record. And when I apply to go outside the country for a conference, it could keep me from going. So don't take this personally, but we can't come to see you anymore. You can come to see us, which we did, of course. You know, you know I had been keeping a diary, a pretty detailed diary of everything. And when November, when, uh, on December 13th, I burned the whole thing because... I, even though I was not writing anybody's name in, I was using codes just in case, but I thought there's just too much detail in here. And I never wrote anything down again after that. I didn't want to do anything to get anybody in trouble. And what, what Poles under communism did, the way they lived their lives uh, and the way they managed was pretty impressive and pretty powerful as a model for people who were there and saw it. During those years you spent in Poland, did your Im image of Poland and Poles change? The more I worked with people, the more I lived there and got a feel and a taste of the country and, and got to meet people. The more I saw life from the inside, the, the more I could recognize how hard this all was for you Poles. I mean, I understood how painful and how frustrating living the kinds of lives you were living were, how much it hurt, really. Uh, it was painful because people struggled with what it meant to be Polish, what it meant to have a Polish identity. It was terrible for them. They identified with some things like their landscape and their, you know, with Michkevich and with Chopin and with the culture and, and with the mountains and the but not with the economy, not with the economic system, not with the government, not with the constant communist propaganda on the signs all over the place. Every bridge, every building had some kind of socialism sign on there. And, and with the need for constant acting and constant performance, because that's what you had to be doing publicly as you spoke. You were never really, people weren't free to say what they wanted. They... What, what I think I came to see is that people were outsiders on their native ground. They were outsiders in their own country. And they felt it. And it was hard. It was painful. And uh, they hated that feeling. They, they were home, but they weren't at home. They didn't have that feeling that, that somehow this is mine. Uh, 
if you look back at that time, what did you learn? Well, two things. I think the Poles were right and wrong. Um, so many people told me that they saw Poland as a country that was, in a sense, a model for the world because of suffering in, in place of other people's suffering, sort of like a Christ figure. And to some extent, there was something to that compared with other countries in Europe, in Western Europe. Uh, Poland certainly paid its dues uh, in the way that some other countries did not. But boy, after some time in India, lots of countries suffer for other people. And uh, if, you want to, if you're going to put suffering at the top of the list, uh, Poland probably isn't terribly competitive in that area. But no, I do think the Poles were right about one thing. They, they, they did not go out to kill their oppressors. They didn't blow people up. Poles understood how to undermine an oppressive system peacefully and, and intelligently and with uh, good humor. And I think that's important. I think that's a real big thing. The other thing I think for me, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot over the years, that feeling of... Um, living in a climate where you feel like an outsider in your own world, in your own country, that's a pretty common feeling today for people, even in advanced democracies, to feel isolated and cut off and not at home, not at peace, not identifying with their own nation. And when you got back, how did it feel to be back? I was very famous when I got back. <laughs> Because, well, because it was in all the newspapers in 1981. You know, there's this American behind the Iron Curtain in terrible conditions, and nobody's heard from him. And it was, the newspapers were full of the interview of everybody I knew. And, uh, and, uh, and so I had all these invitations to go around speaking about, about Poland. I still miss the country. Do you know, I haven't been back since 89. I miss the people. You must have been aware of how important your presence was for us, your colleagues, students, your Polish friends. When I decided to come back the second year and then stay the third year, I remember somebody saying that, uh, they said, we, we will never forget this, that you stayed with us in our hour of need. And that somehow seemed to be very powerful for them. And I, I didn't think of it that way, but I, there was something to that. And I thought I was of more use and more value to people in Poland than I was here. What impact did those three years have on your life? It changed my daughter's life. I mean, that, that was so powerful. For I don't even think she knew where Poland was when we went over there. But she fell in love with the country, learned the language, came back, and she's still teaching Polish history at William and Mary. So this was a big deal for her. And, of course, it changed my life. During those years in Katowice, I met a woman from France who I eventually married, and we have a child now who is now 30 years old. So it changed my life. It helped create a new person for the world. You can find more stories that Bernie Kalowski told about his experience of the early 1980s Poland at mypolcast.com. By now, we try to convince you that if you are driving a car or drinking coffee, you are enjoying some of Polish inventions. But what about electronics? 
I'm sure you've heard about Steve Stefan Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, that company that gave us the iPhone and a mouse. But we wouldn't have any portable electronics without integrated circuits. And we wouldn't have integrated circuits without a crystal clear silicon wafer where all atoms are neatly organized in crystal networks. As you can imagine, hardly silicon crystals is not easy. But what is a silicon wafer? Oh, basically, it's a slice of pure silicon. Just imagine pizza dough, ready for all ingredients before putting it in an oven. Jan Czochralski, a Polish metallurgist, found a simple way of organizing atoms back in 1916 when he accidentally dipped his pen into a crucible of molten tin, rather than his inkwell. He immediately pulled his pen out, only to discover that a thin thread of solidified metal was hanging from the nib. The nib was replaced by a capillary, and Czochralski verified that the crystallized metal was a single crystal. During his experiments, he was able to produce single crystals up to 150 centimeters long. The next year in Poznań, Polish city, in those times under German occupation, he created his own research lab, which he ran until 1928. At the request of President of Poland, Ignacy Mościcki, he moved to Warsaw and became the Professor of Metallurgy and Metal Research at the Chemistry Department at the Warsaw University of Technology. Now, all the silicone wafers are produced using the Czochralski process. You probably have a few of them in your pocket. heard what an American experienced in the communist Poland in the early 1980s. Now a different scenario. Jazz vocalist, musician and composer Ola Turkiewicz spent almost 20 years in Canada where she developed her musical career. Then suddenly in 2008 she moved back to Poland. We will hear about that experience but first why did she leave Canada? That's a, that, that's a very romantic story because uh... Uh, a friend whom I knew from my teenage years found me on um, social media and it was quite amazing that he, he found me that way. He contacted me and we started talking. We started writing to each other emails and and it turned out pretty quickly into into very strong emotion, eventually into love. The decision was quick. We knew we want to get married. We knew we wanted to be together, but we didn't know how to work it out. He was in Poland and I knew that, you know, bringing him to Canada would not make much sense. He uh, doesn't speak English very well, but he is uh, very well established here in Poland. But I, I also didn't want to leave Canada. That was my country. It, it still is. I, I still love it. And then I spent, I don't know, it was, I think it was about 10 days in Poland. Part of it was meeting my, my friends from uh, from older times, uh, and I just was observing observing how how well they were doing here in Poland, how they changed, how they grew into very cool people. Some of them had their own businesses. Some of them had uh, good jobs. Uh, most of them were 
pretty happy people, which prior when I visited Poland, I, I had no connection with. And I most of the people that I was meeting, and it was ma mainly my family, they were not such happy people. So, you know, Poland was always kind of full of unhappy people. Uh, June 2008 actually changed my perspective a lot. And going back, flying back to Canada, I was writing back in my notes, okay, so the decision is made. It's going to be Poland. Later on in the December, I just packed up my bags and flew here to Poland. Let's talk about your your perception of Poland at the beginning when you got there. Was that a shock for you? In June 2008, it was in a sense that I found this country fascinating and very, very beautiful. It was summer. A lot of people were on their vacation. June is a beautiful time. The country that I remember changed a lot. It was full of beautiful places, full of very friendly, nice, kind people. And I thought that I could live here. The decision was not that difficult, also because I had Jacek here, who, who, who was very well established. If I was by myself, I would not move back to Poland because I felt more at home in Canada. Well, that, that's really where I grew up. I was just about 20 when I got to Canada, so it was more my country there because my, most of my adult life I spent in Canada. Poland was, you know, was like a totally, like a totally new country. It was like a new emigration time, you know, like I could move as well to France or, you know, Germany or whatever. The country has changed so much that it was just, you know, it was my country, but it wasn't. What was the most difficult part for you? Uh, so at first I did, I did not find any difficulty, maybe except the one thing that I didn't know what I'm going to do with myself here. <laughs> I felt that I paid my dues. I played clubs. I played, you know, uh, jams and gigs where people don't even listen to you. And I was kind of tired of that. And I really, I was not sure that I really want to do it all over again here in Poland. You know, I, I think I have to come up with something. And did you do what you thought you should do? Totally. And I think this was the best thing I've ever done. Today, I am so happy with what I do professionally, how I do it. it fun enough. I don't think I would be able to do it in Canada. Are you perceived as a as a Canadian who came to Poland and now is Polish and of course has has always had Polish roots, but do they do they ever mention and see this Canadian part? You know, I'm I'm not quite sure, but I sure uh taken advantage of it. And always whenever, you know, I talk about myself in the media, yeah, I, I, I talk about it, that I'm a um, Polish-Canadian. Because I, I, you know, the experience, the musical experience that I have, it's mainly from Canada, and it's a great experience. I, I did work with greatest musicians in Canada, so I, I want to take advantage of that. It gives me some credibility. What was the most difficult part in all this for you? Mentality. At first, it was not as obvious to me that there are differences when i was talking with with people of my age i didn't see the many differences but for example i live in an old building and i have neighbors who are very old people we, normally in canada we say good morning or hi or we greet each other how are you know being being a canadian that, that was a normal thing for them no when i said good morning they they were surprised but eventually they got used to it so today they they greet me with the smiles 
you can see that in Polish people, whenever you walk, like for example, if you go with your dog to a park in Canada, everybody says hi, and we talk with each other. Here in Poland, you know, if you go to a dog park, some people will greet you and talk with you, some people, people won't. They will let the dogs play together, but they won't even, you know, approach you. People are not as open and are not as friendly. They live in their small worlds, and, and that's the most difficult. And what did what do you like the most? I love the country, the tradition, the history. I love how people are hospitable. So once you get to know them, they will give you your last pair of socks. What fascinated me the most is the fact that I was able to come back to Poland after all these years and function and live here and make a good living. Did you ever feel that, that you're perceived as a different person? Did that ever happen? Constantly. Until today, I have my friends saying that I am different. They say that, oh, you're so Canadian. It might be because I always was different, and I know I always was. Are you happy that you did what you did? I wouldn't change it at all. Even if sometimes I'm frustrated with Poland, with how this country functions, with its politics, with the laws here. I'm able to realize myself who I am musically. I, I can live the life I wanted to live. I think I, I'm living pretty interesting, happy life. And if there was um, a soccer game between Poland and Canada? What? I would not want to watch it. <laughs> Because I don't know who I would be cheering for, because both countries I love with all my heart, and I feel very strongly Canadian and very strongly Polish. And I think it makes me a very rich, spiritually person, because I have both experiences. So when you come here in the fall, this is going to be your first Canadian performance since you left Canada. Yes. How do you feel about that? I'm so excited. It's been my dream since I came here. To learn more about Ola's story and about the concert in Canada in the fall, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you recognize it. heavy can a musical instrument be? I don't know. How about a few pounds or kilograms? It would be rather difficult to play it if it was any heavier. But church organs are quite heavy. Imagine an instrument similar to church organs, but using bells as a sound source. Carillion is a musical instrument consisting of at least 23 cast bronze bells in fixed suspension. A carillion is typically located in a clock or church tower. Most carillions encompass three to four octaves, some five or even six. The world's heaviest carillion bell at the Riverside Church in New York City weighs 20 tons. Playing large instruments using fists and feet 
requires considerable physical effort. City of Gdańsk has not one but two Karelians, one on top of the city hall installed in 1561 and after numerous restorations now consisting of 37 bells. This is the one you've heard at the beginning of this segment. Overall, there are 19 Karelians in Poland. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen, think, guess. Where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear this sound? And what is it? You've been listening to the seventh episode of Polcast. Polcast is created in Toronto by Małgorzata Banikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In our next episode, we will tell you how the polka dance is not what it seems to be. Why some Canadians invest so much time and effort to learn Polish. How a photographer sees her work in our image-obsessed world. And we leave you with Enigma, composed and performed by Ola Turkiewicz.